You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. Um, I hope that uh, woke you up, that prayer. Uh, we are, as Maddie said, we are in our series in Daniel in our second last, and it's exciting I'd thank you so much to everyone who helped out in the working bee, by the way. Um, it was an awesome day, and about halfway through the morning, uh, this, this young couple turned up, and uh, we were thinking, they've just, just really started coming along to the church, and, and uh, they said, what can we do? And, and Janice said, we looked at each other, there's this one thing we were sort of avoiding doing. Well, you can, um, you can help clear out the basement slash dungeon. And um, I was thinking, oh, no, don't get this young couple to, they'll never come back. They'll never come back. But they're here this morning. <laughs> So thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even want to do that job. So thank you. My goodness, you're back. Hopefully you'll come back again. Um, It's awesome to be here this morning, isn't it? It's great to be gathered here together as God's people on a rainy day, on a cold day, but it's good to be together and sing and and, and praise our great God because he's worthy. Amen. You know, in our early days, um, early days of our time in the States when we were a band, um, we interviewed quite a few managers, quite a few people to kind of see if they were the right fit for our band. And very early on in this process, uh, we met with these two guys uh, in Nashville who were real characters. I mean, they would have made excellent used car salesmen, you know what I mean? They, They would have made good real estate agents, or I feel bad saying that about real estate agents, but they were kind of schmoozy guys. You know, they they were slick, they wore these cool suits, you know, they were pretty slick. They'd done a little bit of research on us, and they just talked us up to us. You know, they really tried to sell us. It's kind of, you know, we see your name in lights kind of thing. And they said that at least a couple of times, I remember. And you know what? It was actually very appealing. I've got to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to say it, but they were really drawing me in, at least for the first half of our meeting. It kind of became obvious toward the second half that they didn't really know much about the music industry, they didn't know much about how they could help us in our career, but they knew enough, well, let me say, they tapped into something that made me pause. They knew enough to know what most musicians are longing for. They knew enough to know what most musicians are longing for, which I think is significance, right? A chance to to have the world hear what you do, you know, a a chance to be recognised for your talent, right? A chance to be somebody, a chance to be significant. See, this is the theme I want to explore today in Daniel chapter 5, significance. There's a lot in this chapter. We're not going to have time to unpack everything Uh, But what I want to explore is this topic of significance because I think it's a relevant one for you and I today. Now, we are in our series uh, in Daniel called In the Lion's Den, named famously after the events of chapter 6, which we're going to look at next week, where Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. We've also called it that because sometimes living in a city like Sydney, sometimes living in this area, the air we breathe, you know, it kind of feels like we're living in the lion's den. We've had a good journey so far, haven't we? We've seen Daniel come to Babylon from the promised land, from Israel, as an exile with many others to be trained in the ways of Babylon. It's a very different culture, a very different people, a very different religious system. And the question of Daniel is, is God going to be there with them in a different country, in a place that looks nothing like where they've come from? Is God going to be with them? 
And the question is, for these exiles, are they going to survive? How are they going to make it in a world that is so unlike anything they know? Remember the grand theme of Daniel? Remember saw the, the meta theme? In spite of present appearances, God is in control. That's the major theme for the book of Daniel. Now we saw Daniel come to Babylon as a young man, serve under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now in chapter 5, we see him serve under a different king as an old man. I didn't realize this, but Daniel at this point is probably in his 80s. So he's old now in chapter 5. So we're going to explore this theme of significance today by looking at three things, okay? We're going to look at the wild party. If you're listening to the reading, those first four verses is a wild party. We're going to look at that. What was this wild party about? Then we're going to look at the party crasher. Who was it? And what, was, you know, what did he have to say? What was his message? And then finally... We're going to look at the writing on the wall. We're going to spend just a little bit of time on that. So, so most of the time on our first two points. So if, if we're in point two, you're thinking, oh, my goodness, he's going on. Point three is really short, I promise. Okay. Wild party, the party crasher, and the writing on the wall. Let's have a look at the wild party. What is this wild party about? I reckon this party shows us that you and I have a deep need for significance. Now, you might have picked up from the reading that this is just one heck of a party. It's not a normal party, and we're going to see how in a few ways. Firstly, King Belshazzar brings out his wives and concubines while his nobles are there. About 1,000 of them. That's probably most of the upper class of Babylon are here at his party, and he opens up his harem on this night, which is apparently unheard of. It was not the done thing whatsoever. This is totally not by protocol. It's a deliberate effort on his part to create a very sensual environment. This is not a G-rated party. Okay, so it brings out his wives and concubines. This is a deliberate action to make it a sensual environment. Second, he calls for the gold and silver goblets, do you remember? These are part of the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar took from Israel. He, when he conquered, he took exiles away and he, and he defiled the temple by taking some precious treasure from the temple they used to worship God. We're not exactly sure how they used them, but took it back to Babylon. And now at this party, Belshazzar calls for them, calls for the treasure. I think he's showing off. He's basically showing off. It's a way of you know, re- relating himself to the greatness of the empire. Look at what I'm a part of. Okay? So it brings out the harem who calls for the treasures. The third thing he does, they don't just sort of bring out the goblets and drink from them. They toast their own gods while drinking them. So this is a deliberate act of defiance. Now, the God of the Jews over the last generation actually had made inroads into Babylon. Last chapter we saw most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, right, humbled, and he praised the God of the Jews, praised the God of the Bible. This new king Belshazzar, Probably didn't like that, right? And so in a show of defiance, he brings in these articles and, and, and they drink from them and it will show you that our culture, that, that our nation, that our gods are more powerful than yours. Now, why is he doing all of this? Why this party? Why so wild? Why these actions? You might be thinking that you don't need a reason to party. Well, there is a reason here and, and it's kind of helpful to know the background. It's particularly helpful to know the historical background. You see, a huge shadow had been cast over Babylon, and particularly King Belshazzar. Cyrus, leader of the other enormous superpower in that part of the world. But these are tectonic plates that are shifting. Huge Babylonian Empire, Persian Empire, right? Babylonian Empire is coming down. Cyrus, the leader of the Persian army, 
has come within 50 miles of Babylon and defeated the Babylonian army, right? Defeated them. The unthinkable has happened. Remember last week, Nebuchadnezzar on the roof of his palace would look at the greatness of the Babylon that I have. You know, who could have thought that not that you know, long into the future, another superpower could come and destroy them, but it's happened. But it's happened. The capital is now defenseless. And every, you imagine the feeling in the city. Right? Everyone's thinking, what's next? The city, this army, the Persian army is about to come against us. They're going to knock on the city gates. What's going to happen to us? They're going to murder us all? Are going to be starved out? Are they going to kill the nobles? Are we going to have to pay a massive sum to be a vassal empire kingdom? What's going to happen? It's with this background that Belshazzar throws this epic party. Now, it could just be denial, right? The end is near. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It could just be a macho thing. I'm a king and damn it, I'm going to be a king to the very end and throw this epic party. Or maybe it's a way to kind of keep his nobles... Um, close, you know, keep them drunk and keep them full of pleasure so they won't throw him to the conquering army. Maybe. But I tell you what, it doesn't really matter. Because all the reasons for throwing the party come to this. The closer death gets, the more in denial we get about it. The closer death gets, the more we get in denial about it. Closer death gets, the firmer we grasp for significance for our lives. You see, if death is all there is, if there is no life for you and I on a personal level beyond the grave, that's a very difficult reality to live with day to day, don't you think? And if at some point our son dies and everything goes black and there's no future for any of us, nothing we do will be remembered, no one will be around to remember our deeds, that's a very confronting thought. In fact, I think it's such a hard concept to live with that we don't. We actually don't. We'll do whatever it takes not to have to face up to the reality of this fact. And we live this out in three ways. The party, I think, shows us how we do that in three ways. Let's have a look at the first one. Let's have a look at the first one. We find somebody else. What do we do in the face of impending death? How do we create life and meaning and purpose and significance for our lives? We find it in somebody else. We see it in verse 2, right? Belshazzar and his nobles, they pursue pleasure in a person, right? They pursue pleasure in a relationship, in a person. They find meaning in somebody else. In the same way, we look for someone to love and who can love us back to feel significant, right? To make life count. I think we as a culture, we're obsessed with sex and relationships. We're just obsessed. Let's think, look at the, the popular shows on TV. Look at the top 40 songs, right? It's a surprise if they're not about love, sex, and partying. Now, I did my research, not in those areas necessarily, but I did my research on the top 40 songs. And, and, and here's the thing, you can't say I'm not cool and hip. Here is Shawn Mendes, If I Can't Have You, right? This just proves the point. I can't write one song that's not about you. Can't drink without thinking about you. Is it too late to tell you that everything means nothing if I can't have you? I've cited another um, truly uh, great cultural source, Justin Bieber, and he said, um, well, it's actually Justin and Ed Sheeran because I don't care when I'm with my baby. Yeah. All the bad things disappear and you're making me feel like I am somebody. I can deal with the bad nights when I'm with my baby. 
because I don't care as long as you just hold me near. You can take me anywhere, and you're making me feel I'm loved by somebody, and I can deal with the bad nights when I'm with my baby. Yeah. <laughs> Some lyrics sound terrible when you say them, don't they? <laughs> I should have sung it. I should have sung it. <clears throat> anyway, but you get the picture, right? You get the picture. This is where we go. How do we answer the question, am I significant? I'm finding somebody else. But you know what? People are people, right? People are people. And we disappoint. Relationships are messy. Why? Because we're messy. How many people, all right, let's get honest. How many of us have made the pursuit of a romantic partner the thing, the thing? How many of us just have thought, I'm, I'm just, I'm not complete unless I have someone? I mean, doesn't our culture tell us that? You know what? No person can be God to another person. I've said this before, but I'll say it again because it's good. No person can bear that divine weight we put on them. You know what we'll do? We will crush them with these expectations. Be everything for me. No one can fulfill that except God alone. So we'll crush that person and disappoint ourselves in the process. Okay, second way we seek to, to, to find significance is to, to create it. To create it. We find it in what we do make or achieve. We see it in Belshazzar, right? He brings out the silver and gold goblets, you know? This is a way that we can separate ourselves from the herd. It's the kind of my name in lights idea. You know, I'm, I'm very drawn into that. A way we can carve out significance by our uniqueness. I'll show everyone that I have what it takes. Belshazzar grasping for the treasures. Look what I'm a part of. You know, look, what I, look at what, my, my, what I'm king of, my royal line. We look at our achievements and what we've made and what we've accomplished. Have you ever seen this in somebody? Can you see it in yourself? Have you ever, it's probably a bit passe these days, but have you ever been to somebody's trophy room? Have you ever been there? I don't know if people really have them anymore, but have you ever been to someone's trophy room? Or maybe you've ever been at a party where sort of the, the photos of the old glory days come out? You ever experienced that? Or, or maybe you've been at a party and have you been invited into the garage, you know, to see the new car purchase? Or, or maybe you've been at a party to survey the grand extension, the renovations or the pool house. I don't know what it is. You ever experienced that? I remember going to a very well-known musician's house in the States. And as you walked in the front door, you were bombarded with just the many platinum and gold records in frames and awards that they'd won right there in the entrance. You could not miss it. Their accomplishments on display in a major way. I remember going, not that long after, I remember going to probably even a more successful musician's house. Nothing like it anywhere. And let me tell you, I looked. Um, we, uh, we were there, I excused myself to go to the bathroom and I snooped around. Um, don't ask me to your house. Um, <laughs> But I looked, I couldn't see anything like that. And I did, this person was a very humble person. I don't think they, they put any stock in something like that. They just didn't really care about this stuff. It's funny what we do with these things. How do we answer the question, am I significant? Well, it's, it's almost natural to kind of look at the things that we've done. How am I going to live on? Will I live on through this? Things we've done, created and achieved. But how much is enough? Okay. Third approach. You might think this is an odd one. Third approach, the last sort of reach for significance we see from this party is religion. 
right? Belshazzar turns to religion at this crisis time. He toasts the gods with the goblets, and we can do the same. Obviously not in that way, but maybe religion will do it. Maybe we should get religious. This is the way many people throughout the history of the ages have overcome this feeling of insignificance. We'll find out who is God, what does he, she, they, it want, and then I'll do it. That this will kind of, this is where I'll put my hope for significance. This is what will give my life meaning. But the problem is, with religion apart from the Christian gospel, the problem is this. If we feel like we've done what is required, I'm doing well, feel like I'm doing what is required, what does that breed in us? It breeds pride. And if anyone attacks our efforts, our good works, well, then the very foundation of our life is being attacked. Whereas in the Christian gospel, we do good things, we do good works, people attack them, well, that's okay. That's not where I'm putting the foundation of my life. The foundation of my life is Jesus Christ who has done everything for me. And so then if that's you, you can admit, well, I'm I'm a sinner saved by grace, so no one can take away what Christ has done for me. But if we're putting our our hope and and, and our dreams and our efforts into what we can do for God, someone attacks that, well, the very foundation of our lives is being attacked. And what happens then? Or, on the other hand, if we feel like, man, we just can't live up to this religious standard, I can't do it, I'm not doing very well, what does that breed? It breeds depression. I can't do it, I'll never make it, I'll never achieve significance, I'll never be worthy, I can never do enough. See, the truth is, each one of us will do one of these things I've mentioned to find significance, to prove our worth, or we'll go between the three of them to avoid insignificance. Okay, how do we avoid it? What do we do? Let's look at that answer by looking at our second point, looking at the party crasher. Who is it? What's his message? Well, our party crasher is Daniel. Now, isn't this just a fascinating turn of events? Belshazzar holds this ridiculously wicked, wild party, and then a human hand writes on the wall. That would be pretty scary. That would be pretty trippy, right? And Belshazzar collapses in fear. The original language kind of it looks like he might have wet himself, like he is really fearful. And we probably would be too, right, if a hand started writing on the wall. It'd be pretty scary. The wise men are brought in to decipher its meaning. They can't do it. So calls are made for our old mate Daniel. He's brought in. He listens to the king. You know what the first thing he does is? He rebukes him pretty harshly. He rebukes him by comparing him to Nebuchadnezzar, who repented of his prideful and arrogant ways. Do you remember? In chapter 4 last week, he converted, or at the very least, supported faith in the God of the Bible. And from Daniel's rebuke of Belshazzar, we can learn three things, right? Three ways to combat the natural ways we grasp for significance. We learn three ways, and here they are. The first one is this. We can trust God's word. We can trust God's word. We'll find significance for our lives when we trust in God's word. Now, the king offers Daniel riches and honour like he did with the wise men, right? And and an incredibly high place in the kingdom. If you can tell me what this means, you know what Daniel says? (laughs) It says it pretty abruptly. He says, you can keep your gifts to yourself. Now, why does he say that? It's not just that he's really kind of unimpressed with this upstart king, although that's probably true. He's making a statement. He's making a statement. He's like, these things you're offering me, they mean nothing. That's how you chase significance. I'm going to trust in the word of God. 
I'll turn to the Word of God. See, what Daniel's about to do is speak the truth of the Word of God. That hand is, of course, at God's doing. These are the words of God, the truth of God. He said, I'm going to put my trust in that. And what I'm about to tell you, it's not my wisdom. It's not my research. What I'm about to tell you is the Word of God. Now, you probably notice in the book of Daniel that every time something kind of happens, they wheel in the wise men, but they fail. They can't do it. They can't decipher the dream. They can't decipher the meaning on the wall. Their worldly wisdom fails them. And I tell you, if we want to find an answer to the significance question, to the meaning question, to the purpose question, worldly wisdom will fail us. We've got to turn to the one who made us and his word to answer that question. Here's the thing. Because science and worldly wisdom, they're great things, right? But they cannot answer these questions. It's not fair to ask them of them. They cannot answer questions of purpose and significance. They're fantastic at answering the what questions, but totally unqualified to answer the why ones. Here's an example. I don't know if you'll find this one interesting, but it's, I think it's helpful. Research has shown that people trust members of their own race more than others, right? Researchers, scientific data has proven that we're racist, that we tend to trust people of our own race more than members of another race. That's sad, right? It's terrible. Hopefully you agree with me, but who says so? See, science just gives us the data. It's helpful. But we want to make a comment on whether that's good or bad. Well, then we're going into a whole different category of question, aren't we? We're going into the questions of, well, what makes us human? It's a moral question. It's a belief question. You see, unless we go to the Word of God, we can't deal with this significance question. And let me say, we can trust the Bible to answer these questions. The thing is, I reckon some of us might be skeptics. There are some nice things in the Bible. Jesus has a lot of great teachings in there. There's some nice things in there, but trust the whole thing? Really? I don't know if you know this, but Daniel 5 is a lesson in skepticism. Some of you probably know this, but Daniel 5 used to be one of those texts that skeptics pointed to and say, look, you can't trust the Bible. I'll prove it to you. Here's why. From the sources we had from ancient Babylon and Persia, the next king after Nebuchadnezzar was not Belshazzar. It wasn't. He wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's son. The last king of Babylon was not Belshazzar. It was a guy called Nabodius. So the Bible's wrong. See? They used to point to it. The Bible is wrong. We can see they got this wrong. We can't trust it. And if you can't trust it in this area, you probably can't trust it in other areas. But here's the thing. Not that long ago, an inscription was dug up telling us that the last king of Babylon actually left the capital city due to an argument uh, over religion, we think, of favouring particular deities. He left, and he left the ruling of Babylon to his son. And guess who he was? Belshazzar. And that's why Belshazzar in the story offers the wise men and Daniel the third highest place in the kingdom because he can't offer them anymore because there's a king above him. So the writer of Daniel actually knew more than the modern historians of a few decades ago. You see, you and I were always going to struggle with this. What did the serpent say in the garden? Did God really say, sowing the seed of doubt? That's what 
so many of us are going to struggle with. Our temptation is to just mistrust God, mistrust his word. And here's the thing, especially when we don't like it, especially when we don't like what it says, especially when it disagrees with us. I mean, come on, that disagrees with my well-formed modern sort of identity. It just doesn't seem to be right. The temptation is just going to be to exclude the bits we don't like and keep the parts that we do like. That's the temptation, I reckon. But of course, when we do this, we create our own version of God and we suck all the life out of a real relationship with the living God. You think about it. If you've got a best friend, right? You've got a best friend that can't tell you hard truths sometimes. What kind of friendship is that? If when they tell you something you really need to hear, you just cut them out of your life, what's that? Is that a real friendship? See, if you've never felt uneasy, never disagreed with, never thought, ooh, I'm not sure about that, when it comes to your faith and God's word, we may have made up our own version of God, who, of course, is not the living God anyway. Okay, second thing we can see from the party here is, the second thing we can learn from Daniel's rebuke to Belshazzar is we've got to come to grips with pride. We've got to come to grips with pride. It's the issue, the issue of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, refusing to give God what is owed. Us saying, I did this, this is all for me and by me. Now, we looked at this issue of pride last week pretty heavily, so I'm not going to spend much time here. And we've looked at it once, so we're never going to have an issue with pride again. I mean, maybe in 10 years we'll look at it, but we're, we're sorted. Here's the thing about pride. It's so insidious. It disguises itself so well. Here's the thing about pride. We don't really understand the love of God because we don't really get sin, right? We aren't moved by the love of God because we just don't get sin. See, I could stand up here all morning and just say, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Wouldn't that be an easy sermon to prepare, right? Just saying that, God loves you, God loves you. But would you be moved by it? Would you be moved by that? I could go to you know, the high street in Mossman and just say, good morning, God loves you, good morning, God loves you. People would look at me like I'm a freak. But apart from that, they might just say, that's a nice thought. Would they be moved by it? See, I, I think sometimes we're not because we don't know how much we need it. The more we understand sin, the more the love of God moves us. See, this is the truth of the gospel, right? We are fully known and fully loved. Fully known and fully loved. We're almost done here. And if that statement doesn't generate awe and wonder and joy, then I, I, we just haven't understood the darkness of our hearts. Just think about it, right? Think about it like this. Think about how we cultivate ourselves, how we cultivate the version of what we let people see. I mean, online, it's just it's obvious, right? What photos do we put up? What stories do we put up? We want people to see the best version of us and people like it and makes us feel good, but it's kind of superficial, right? Are they liking the real us? I mean, a great example of this is dating, right? I mean, for some of us, we're thinking a long way back now, but dating is the ultimate experience of this, right? You don't want to let the other person see that kind of crazy side of you, right? Those weird things. And so for as long as humanly possible, you, you put your best foot forward, you try and sort of leave those weird and crazy habits that you have uh, to the side. But here's the thing, when you get married, it's really hard to hide those things. It's very exposing because that person's kind of there all the time. And honestly, it can be very difficult for a lot of couples when these things come out. 
because it's an exposing time. But let me tell you, God can do some profound work in us in those moments if we'll let him. Because the beauty of marriage is loving each other despite the mess that comes up. The easy thing to do is the mess comes up and we walk away. That's the easy thing. The hard thing is to stay and face it head on in God's strength. But here's the thing. Even your spouse doesn't know you like God does. Fully known. Just think about that for a second. Fully known. God knows you inside and out. God knows me inside and out. And let me tell you, if you guys had that knowledge of me, I would be utterly embarrassed. If you knew what God knew, I, I, I don't think I could stay here. I think I'd be out of here. I'm not sure you'd see me again. I couldn't, I couldn't look you in the eye. I'd be so ashamed. You'd probably want to run away from me. But is that what, is that what God does? God knows me completely. Does he run away from me? No. He runs toward me. He runs toward you. This is the power of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. And it leads us to our final point. This is how we can deal with our desire for significance. We've got to know the difference between religion and the gospel. This is the gospel. See, God knowing all our sin, every single one of us knows us inside and out, knows our complete inability to give him what he's owed, pursued us. Jesus came from heaven to find us in our sin. He doesn't run away from us. He runs toward us. It's unheard of. We, tr- we find true significance in the God who pursues us. See, people will ultimately disappoint us. Material things, even religious achievements, it's never enough. They can't love us back. But the gospel is this, Jesus knows us. You are fully known. He knows our hearts, the depths of our sin, and he chose still. It wasn't a naive thing to do. He chose still to pursue us, to die in our place, and to give us his perfect record. So we're not condemned, but accepted as his children. You want to talk about significance. I tell you what, let that electrify our hearts this morning. I tell you, if we are a people categorized by this truth, we will be a life-giving signpost to this community. Which brings us to our last point very briefly, our final point. What is this pointing finger? What is this writing on the wall? What's it pointing to? Now, the writing on the wall was the truth of God, right? Signaling the end of something. Signaling the end of Belshazzar's kingdom. He'd been judged and found wanting. His kingdom was taken from him that night. Jesus Christ... When he came into the world, signaled the end of another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Sin, death, the devil, their power and strongholds defeated in Jesus' name, finally consummated upon his return. You and I have the opportunity to be the new writing on the wall, signaling, pointing to this new kingdom. That's what we are. We're ambassadors of this new kingdom that Christ has introduced, that is going to fill the whole earth. But how do we do it? Do we go around to parties like Belshazzar's and say, stop doing that, stop doing that? Is that the way to do it? No. We embody these kingdom truths, these kingdom values here and in our lives. Here's our prayer. May we be a community made up of people, finding our significance not in other things or achievements, even religious achievements, but in the transforming love of God. 
a people changed from the inside out by the powerful love of Jesus. That's a community on fire. That's a community pointing to the hope of Christ for all people. May we be this fully known yet fully loved. Let's pray.